In 2015, in the midst of a global debate about prescription drug prices, the UN Secretary General convened a high-level panel on access to medicines. Last September, the panel released its findings, calling for increased transparency in the drug development process and for new business models. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Suri Moon, Director of Research at the Global Health Center at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, and a member of the UN panel's expert advisory group. Dr. Moon has written a perspective article about the panel's recommendations for improving global access to medicines. Dr. Moon, why did the Secretary General believe it was the right time to address this issue of global drug prices and access when he convened the panel in 2015? First of all, thanks very much for having me. I think that's a terrific question, is what were the origins of the panel? There had been a recommendation made actually back in 2012 for a panel to be convened to look at the policy incoherence between the international intellectual property rights system and the right to health, in particular, the goal of ensuring access to essential medicines for all. And it took a while for that panel to be put in place, but I believe one of the reasons was that there was growing concern worldwide that it would be quite difficult to achieve the sustainable development goals, for example. It would be quite difficult to ensure affordable access to medicines unless further work was done to resolve this tension or policy coherence. The other thing to keep in mind is, of course, that Secretary General Bond was nearing the end of his term, and he knew that if he wanted to do something on this issue, he would have to do it soon. It's notable that he waited, I think, a few years to put this in place, in part because the politics of intellectual property rights and public health have been quite difficult, with wealthier countries often strongly opposed to the perspectives of developing countries. This has been one of the most difficult issues in global health. You write in your article that in Europe, new medicines can cost less than half their U.S. prices. So, two questions. What allows European countries to get better deals on those medicines, and why is that still not enough to make them affordable in the rest of the world? That's a great question. Uh, Of course, it really depends on which medicine we're talking about and which European country, but in general, it is certainly the case that medicines are much cheaper. It can certainly cost half or even less than half in certain cases of the prices that are paid in the U.S., One of the main reasons, and it's really pretty straightforward, is that governments play an important role in negotiating over the prices of those medicines, and they use a range of policy tools to do so. There's direct negotiation. There's also the use of pharmacoeconomic assessment. There's a prioritization of certain medicines over others based on efficacy and cost-effectiveness. So there's a lot of ways in which governments can actually play a role in making sure that prices are affordable. What we're seeing, however, is that lately European governments are increasingly concerned about the rising price of medicines for a number of reasons. Sometimes negotiation power is not actually enough to decrease prices to affordable levels. Sometimes the burden of disease in a country can be so high that even at the best price that a country can manage to get, they can't possibly provide coverage to all their citizens. And hepatitis C is one of those areas where prevalence is quite high. And even at prices that are significantly discounted from U.S. levels, governments are really concerned about breaking their health budgets. The U.N. panel recommended that governments mandate disclosure of information on drug research and development costs. So how would that work in practice if different countries have different disclosure policies? What's the global situation? Yeah, I think what's interesting about that particular recommendation is that you actually only need one mid- to large-sized country to implement it because, of course, a company, once they disclose their R&D costs publicly, you know, that information would be available worldwide. 
and various governments could use that information when they come to the table to negotiate for prices. They could use that information to introduce a degree of rationality into pricing discussions, both directly with the manufacturer, but also, I think, more broadly in society. One of the problems we see today, in my view, is that we are not able to have a very rational or well-informed public debate on what is an appropriate price for medicines. And one of the reasons we're not able to do that is that a lot of the information we need is not disclosed, it's not transparent. So that could include, of course, the cost of research and development. It might include the level of tax breaks that a company may have received. There are many different tax breaks related to research and development in the U.S. and also in, in other countries. There's not enough transparency even regarding the efficacy and safety profile of medicines that are put on the market. So there are many, many different areas where further transparency would benefit public deliberation over how we should manage the problem of rising drug prices. Looking at public money, the panel also endorsed ensuring a public return on public investment in the development of medicines. So how does public financing of pharmaceutical research affect how drugs are priced today? So it's well understood that for many drugs, there is an important component of public investment in the R&D process. Now, it's difficult to get uh, very precise data on a drug-by-drug basis, and this is one of the areas where further transparency would be useful. But researchers have been able to look at public investments in research in various disease areas and look at patent applications, in fact, to get a better understanding of what is the relationship. And what we know is that in terms of total global R&D spending on medicines, public investment and philanthropic investment combined is about 30 to 40 percent. That's just on the financial side. When we look at what is the role of public investment across the most therapeutically advanced drugs, for example, those that are deemed worthy of priority review by the FDA, we see that public investment has been linked to about two-thirds of those drugs. And when we look at all drugs, not just those that get priority review, but all drugs that are submitted and approved by the FDA, it's about one half. So it's clear that public investment in R&D is a very important part of the global R&D system. But what we don't see is any kind of systematic strings being tied to that public money to ensure that at the end of the day, the drugs that result from those investments are actually made affordable or that the public benefits in other ways. There are a number of different ways that we could think about public return on public investment. One is, of course, affordability, as I've just mentioned. Another is disclosure of information from throughout the R&D process. Another is that perhaps royalties from drug sales could go back to some of the public investors in order to continue to fund future research. There are lots of different ways in which we could think about public return. But the big problem today is that essentially we're not tying strings to that money and the public is not getting a good deal. So we end up paying essentially twice for the same research. We pay once through taxpayer money, and we pay again at the end of the day when the public is paying elevated prices for drugs ostensibly to cover research costs. Now, if we wanted to actually implement a reasonable system to ensure greater public return, it wouldn't be that hard to do. And in fact, it would be very much in line with what Donald Trump has expressed as his part of his governing philosophy, which is that he wants to get a better deal for the American public. He thinks that government and previous administrations have not done a adequate job in actually getting a good deal for government or for the American people. And in fact, trying to ensure that federal money invested in medicines research actually yields benefits in terms of affordable medicines. This would be pretty low-hanging fruit. And as an added bonus, it would also be an area where I think it would be pretty clear you could get some bipartisan support behind this. Just 
as a example of the kind of bipartisan support he might be able to expect, Bernie Sanders has been, in fact, one of the most vocal and active members of Congress who's been pushing for various regulations that would actually give government a bigger role in ensuring that medicines are affordable to all Americans. I want to ask about patents as well. You say in your article that despite some objections to language about patents in the new report, in fact, governments for years have had the authority to decide when a private patent right can be set aside in the interest of public health. Have many governments taken that step? So a number of governments actually have taken that step, mostly in response to the HIV crisis. And it is a step that is, in fact, protected under international trade rules through what's called the TRIPS Agreement of the World Trade Organization. All major economies are members of the World Trade Organization and bound by these rules. So this is a flexibility that was agreed to when that treaty was first negotiated. It was reiterated again in 2001, in fact, shortly after in the United States, we had, of course, the anthrax scare, and we had the U.S. government under Secretary Tommy Thompson threatening to override the patent on superfloxacin when there were concerns that there would not be adequate supplies to meet public demand or to protect the health of the public at that time. So it is a flexibility in international patent rules that is widely accepted. In all the major U.N. declarations since 2001, this right has been reaffirmed. But the reality is that a number of countries actually have a hard time making use of this right. And that's because of political pressures that are exerted on countries either in a public manner or very often behind closed doors. So while a number of countries have made use of this flexibility, in fact, we still see that many countries express frustration that they can't, in reality, make use of it and their hands are tied when it comes to negotiating for lower drug prices. Now, this happens to be, I think, a bigger issue for developing countries who tend to have less negotiating leverage with pharmaceutical corporations because, of course, their markets are smaller. They tend to wield less political power than, say, a European country or, of course, the U.S. government. But it's also a concern for all countries. There was quite recently an interesting illustration of this problem when the government of Colombia was trying to use this flexibility to decrease the price of a cancer medicine known as Gleevec, or the generic name is Imatinib. And Gleevec is uh, patented by a Swiss pharmaceutical company called Novartis. And the Colombian government had been in negotiations for several years with Novartis to obtain a price that their health system could afford for people with leukemia in Colombia. When those negotiations failed to yield a, a reasonable price, the government of Colombia wanted to make use of compulsory licensing, this government right to override a patent. And they came under very strong pressure from the U.S. government, especially the Trade Representative's Office and others, not to make use of this right. And in fact, there was a leaked cable from the Colombian embassy in the United States recounting a meeting in which the government had been pressured by the staff of a member of Congress regarding whether or not they would make use of this right. And in fact, they were made to understand that the U.S. government's support more broadly for the Colombian peace process would be jeopardized if Colombia went ahead and made use of this right. So that's just one of the most recent and vivid examples of this type of pressure being exerted. But what we hear regularly from government representatives from developing countries is that it is in practice extremely difficult. And other governments observe what happened in the Columbia case, and, and they're often discouraged from making use of this right. So one of the issues that the high-level panel wanted to address was, why is it that the letter of the law is not really being respected here? That all governments, U.S. government, European governments, the Swiss government, the developing country governments agreed to this right and have agreed over and over again in the letter of the law that this right exists. But in reality, as I was saying, it's, it's quite difficult to put into force. So one of the recommendations of the high-level panel 
that is quite important is that the WTO put in place measures that would actually help to enforce this right and increase the policy space for governments to actually make use of it. I think it's important to specify that the high-level panel did not, in fact, recommend any changes to the WTO agreement on patents. They did not recommend further flexibilities or further rights for governments, and this was actually a point on which the panel came under some pretty strong criticism from a number of health advocates. I think many people were hoping that the panel would go further, but it didn't, and it really said the existing agreements are adequate, but they do need to be enforced, and we need new tools to ensure that they are enforced and respected. So the reaction from those who have been quite critical of the report is a bit puzzling because the reaction has been that the panel is an attack on patents, the panel is undermining incentives for innovation, the panel is weakening the patent system that underlies the bulk of the modern-day R&D system. And in fact, that's just not true. If you read the actual report, it really doesn't do that. And I think that's an important distinction to make when people actually read the report versus some of the hype and some of the PR efforts that have really criticized the report since it was released in September. Finally, you write in your article that the fate of the high-level panel report is uncertain, given that this year we'll have a new UN Secretary General, a new U.S. President, and a new Director General of the World Health Organization. Where do you think the debate on drug pricing is going to go from here? What's going to happen next? That's a great question. I think many people are wondering, certainly in the U.S., what's going to happen next under the Trump presidency on drug pricing. At least based on his first few days in office, it seems quite clear that he is making it a priority, and I do think there will be some government action in the U.S. on drug pricing. Now, whether it will be as effective as it needs to be is an open question. And one of the very important recommendations of the panel is actually that we don't just tinker around the edges and that, of course, negotiation over drug prices is kind of step one. As we heard in Europe, negotiation alone is actually not enough to ensure affordability. And I think that will be the case in the U.S., even if Congress does decide to allow the federal government to negotiate over drug prices. One of the important recommendations of the panel was actually to re-examine the way research and development is done from the ground up and really to explore what I would call new business models or new ways of conducting innovation that might, in fact, help us to avoid this dilemma of trying to trade off innovation versus access, trying to trade off investment in R&D versus rationing against high prices of medicines and access. So there are some pretty interesting examples where, in fact, projects have managed to deliver both innovation and widespread equitable access to a medicine. And that's through a principle called delinkage, where you provide adequate rewards for innovation. So it doesn't mean that we stop investing in R&D. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't provide incentives and rewards for those who deliver new medicines. But that reward is actually not linked or not generated from the high price of medicines. And so if we can provide rewards through upfront grant funding, through appropriate strings on upfront grant funding where that already takes place from either public or philanthropic sources, if we can also provide milestone or end product prizes to innovators, we could certainly generate significant return on investment for innovators, but at the end of the day, the final product should be put into the public domain right away and sold as a generic medicine. Now, it sounds like a pretty significant shift from the mainstream way that drugs are developed today, but what we've seen is that in a number of priority areas for global health, particularly where R&D has been funded already primarily with public and philanthropic monies, that it has been possible to implement these types of models. And one of the examples that I give 
in the article is of the Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative, which is a nonprofit organization that has put six new products on the market. And those products are able to be sold as generics or similarly at a level that is priced near the cost of production, either through generic competition or through other contractual obligations that require the sellers to sell near the cost of production. So it is absolutely feasible to do it, but I think we need to expand this model to other areas and test it out. There is interest in expanding this type of R&D model to antibiotics development, where it does not make sense for the public for example, to incentivize large volume sales, we need to actually limit the use of some of the newer classes of antibiotics, and we need to limit the incentive that companies have to market or even over-market the use of antibiotics. So it makes a lot of sense for antibiotic research. And there's also, I think, an interest in implementing the system, for example, for outbreak-related R&D, where you might never have a product come to market, and so the incentive for innovation is quite low. We need to be able to pay and incentivize innovators to invest in drugs, vaccines, and diagnostics, for example, for Ebola or Zika or a number of other pathogens that may become you know, pandemics in the future. We need to be able to do that, but those innovators, of course, cannot rely on high prices or large volume sales to recoup the cost of their investment. So we need another system. So there's been, I think, some advances in the conversation. These are no longer considered pie-in-the-sky ideas. They're very concrete ideas that have been implemented and that are going to be implemented in the near future. But what we haven't seen is an expansion of this kind of thinking to other areas where we're really struggling with high prices of medicines, and those other areas can include, of course, cancer, some of the many diseases that are also now getting orphan drug designation, where we regularly see that the price of medicine is six digits, and I've even seen now seven digits. It's absolutely unsustainable today for health systems. If you can imagine the aging of societies, not only in Europe and in the U.S., but around the world. We're going to see an increasing need for medicines, increased population utilization. It's absolutely unsustainable for drugs to continue being priced the way they are. Thank you, Dr. Moon.